Welcome back, friends, to The Rob Manus Show. Wanted non-career, non-establishment Americans in the U.S. Senate. Well, folks, the 2022 congressional primaries have begun, and it looks like things are shaping up into a battle royale between the non-career, non-establishment candidates against the establishment and career politician candidates in a lot of these races. We've had our eye on Ohio for quite some time, as the GOP primary there has a mix of non-career, establishment, and career politicians running against each other. At least three of them, by our judgment, are capable of winning in the general election. But one Marine veteran and author really stands out. His name is J.D. Vance. He's the author of the book Hillbilly Elegy and a Marine who deployed to Iraq. What really stands out to us is not those bits of his bio, but his policy positions at a time when our country's in grave danger from a literal invasion through our southern border, over 100,000 fentanyl overdose deaths last year caused by China, and the U.S. Congress passing $14.2 billion in aid to Ukraine while giving none to Border Patrol, and increases to that, the American people desperately need more men and women who have the courage to stand up to the elites, the establishment uniparty power brokers, and America's enemies from a position in the U.S. Senate. That is why we have a man who is demonstrating this courage every day as our guest, Mr. Vance, on the show today. J.D., welcome to the Rob Manus Show, sir. Thanks, Colonel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, I know you're very busy, so let's get right to it. Uh, I'm going to forgo my normal question on why you're running, because I, I think most people know at this point in our country sure. why 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 at normal Americans, average Americans that have never been in politics and that kind of stuff are doing this. Let's start with illegal immigration and border security. Uh, uh, where are you at on the spectrum of policy from an immigration perspective? Yeah, it comes down pretty hard on the restrictionist side, just because I think, you know, if, if you don't have borders and you don't have control over who comes into your country, you don't actually have a, a real country. You know, in particular, there are a few things that are going on at the southern border that don't get nearly enough media attention. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy to think about what's happening at the southern border, uh, how much the media covers that versus how much round the clock coverage we have in the Ukraine-Russia situation. And, you know, so, so three big things worry me. The first is you have a real explosion of violent crime coming into the country across the southern border. Uh, if you go three or four miles south of the U.S. border, unfortunately, even three or four miles north of the border, you start to see some really serious gang activity happening. And of course, that's filtering its way up even into my home state of Ohio, you know, where I'm running for the Senate here. Mm. I talk to police officers all the time who are shocked when they arrest somebody and find out that they're on the FBI's list of, of Mexican drug cartels. That's happening right now because of our border policies. The second thing that's happening is you've got really an explosion of sex trafficking into our communities. So I talked to a woman in Youngstown, Ohio, probably three or so months ago, because we, we you just had a baby a couple months ago. It was right before our, our third baby was born. Mm -hmm. And uh, she had picked up 13 and 14-year-old Guatemalan boys who had been brought into this country illegally, sold into sex slavery in Youngstown, Ohio, right? Sort of shows how, how evil these people are and how significant of a problem is. And then finally, yeah. you've got the, the leading cause of death uh, among 18 to 45 year olds in this country is is drugs. And most of those drugs are it's Chinese fentanyl that's then brought into Mexico and shipped into our country by the Mexican drug cartels. All three of those problems have gotten worse given what's going on with the southern border. And unfortunately, too few of our leaders are willing to call it out. It's one of the main reasons why I'm running for this office in the first place. 
Yeah, I think it's very important to reiterate 100,000 overdose deaths a year from fentanyl, and that fentanyl comes from China through the cartels through Mexico. 100,000, man. I mean, that that is, a few years ago, two years ago, it was 70,000. You know, we used to kill, you know, 60,000 people a year in car accidents before the airbags and the technology got really good, and it's down in the 30s now, I think. Uh, and, and we're killing 100,000, probably most of them young people, uh, a year, and it's like nobody gives a damn. That's right. Where in the hell are the politicians that are supposed to be setting the policies to address this stuff? Yeah, they're asleep or they're focused on Russia and Ukraine right now. I mean, right? That, that's really what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the way that I think about this is, you know, imagine, so, so we obviously, hopefully coming down to the end of this COVID madness over the past couple of years, mm-hmm. um, and, and think about every, you know, time someone died of COVID, it was a major story in local media, right? I mean, it, it, it really was a constant reminder of the virus that was spreading across the, the, the country and spreading across our communities. Think about what would happen if you had a CNN ticker for every single time somebody died of a fentanyl overdose in this country and a reminder that the cause of that fentanyl death was our lawless southern border. I think you'd actually have a country uh, that recognized what a serious problem this was, or at least a media leadership. I think most people in our country actually do get what a serious problem this is. You know, the, a couple of things I proposed is, is one, let's declare these Mexican drug cartels, terrorist organizations, allow the U.S. military to really go to the southern border and do some real work on these people, right? It's the drug problem, but it's also the sex trafficking problem. It's the cartels who have gotten rich from the sex trafficking issue. Uh, the second thing I proposed is we got to stop the incentive for people to come into this country illegally in the first place. And we know one of the reasons that that's happening is because we're a generous country, right? We provide a lot of welfare benefits at the state and federal level to people who come here illegally. So why don't we just cut that off, right? Why don't we say uh, you cannot get any welfare benefits in this country unless you yourself are a U.S. citizen and can provide proper proof of that? I, I think that would stop the flow of people because it's that lawlessness, right? It's that mm-hmm. that reason that people come uh, to this country in the first place that has given our country over the drug cartels at the southern border. we got to stop it, right? we really yeah. got to stop it because uh, it is, you know, it is the thing that will transform this country. You know, we don't talk enough about this either, but, but you know, if you think about, let's say, 200,000 illegal aliens into this country every single month, that's 10 to 15 million over the course of Joe Biden's four-year term, uh, hoping to God that he only serves one four-year term. Um, you, know, you add that on to the 15, 20 million illegal aliens we already have, you're talking about close to 30 million people, Colonel. Uh, what happens when all those people are given the right to the vote, as the Democrats want to do? Right. That is the end of any conservative being able to win a national election in this country. It permanently transforms our public services, our hospital systems, our welfare system. You cannot let this happen if you want to still live in the United States of America. And I, and I think, unfortunately, that's what the Democrats are trying to do. They're trying to transform the country that we're living in, turn it into something else so that they can control it even more. Yeah. It's, to me, it's about power for the people that are in power. And, and yeah, a lot of that's Democrat, but there's a lot of it on, on the other side of the aisle, too. I, that's why I, in my intro, you heard me use the term uniparty. Uh, I started calling people like Mitch McConnell and those types the uniparty years ago because they seem to favor helping each other out than, they, than to help America out and, and the Americans, even though, you know, uh, I get it, folks, uh, you know, honorable service and all that, uh, but you can still be focused on the wrong things, and they're focused on their power. Uh, and, and 
they're focused on silly things too, JD, uh, like you just talked about a smart policy of putting our military down on our border, maybe even, and you didn't mention this, but as you were talking, I was like, I bet you know what, Mexico would probably welcome our uh, remotely piloted vehicles to come in there and take out some of those guys in their cartel because they're in a literal combat zone. Uh, I mean, I saw in the media, uh, uh, the Laredo Mexican town south of Laredo, Texas is like having full-blown firefights. Uh, in the middle of the night between uh, citizens and the cartel, which a lot of them are cops, quite frankly. Uh, they're, uh, they're corrupt cops. So, you know, that's a smart policy. Yeah. And then you get the silly policy people, like $14.2 billion to go, more to go to Ukraine, which, look, Ukraine's under attack by a guy that I've never liked. I always tell people, you always got to remember that Vladimir Putin is a KGB colonel. So mm -hmm. he thinks and he acts and he conducts policy like a KGB colonel. And that's what you're seeing, an old Soviet-style invasion of a satellite country over in Ukraine. So, so my heart's with the Ukrainians and their fight for their own liberty and their own uh, uh, self-determination and those kind of things. But I don't want one drop of American blood spilled over there. Our country and the Allies made some huge mistakes that put Ukraine in this position. Uh, and, and the Russians have always had a, a much higher interest in that area called the near abroad, especially with the Ukraine. And this didn't have to go down this way. And you've got people in the U.S. Senate and the U.S. Congress that, would, that have literally almost unanimously voted to send all this money, and, and a lot of them even want a no-fly zone over there. Now, I'm an Air Force guy, so I know what a no-fly zone is war. That's a war act, uh, because you're going to shoot at somebody, and somebody's going to shoot at you in order to uh, come into the airspace and conduct their mission. Where are you at on all this, and have you called these folks out? Nonstop, man. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm with you and I've been calling these guys out nonstop. And it's frankly been a little disappointing to see some 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 leaders that I admire who I, I think of as future leaders in our party who have really gone fully in on the Ukraine madness. Um, you know, I, I, I'm with you. Right. I'm not one of these people. I've never said a nice word about Vladimir Putin uh, in, in my life. I have no affection for him. Uh, who I do have affection for is, is the citizens of my own country. Uh, and the people here and the struggles that they're having and the problems that their government needs to actually pay attention to. And, you know, what, what are the, the, the annoying things that always happens when I say, well, look, we need to focus on our own problems and not on the problems of a country 6,000 miles away. Is people say, well, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. And my response is, well, if we can walk and chew gum at the same time, why aren't we? Right. If we can send $14 billion to the Ukrainians, why can't we spend twi send twice that much to our own southern border to ensure that our people stop dying of fentanyl overdoses? Right. This is just crazy that we're so focused on this problem. And, and I got to say, you know, you're absolutely right. It's a terrible war. Uh, I admire, you know, I mean, I feel a lot of sympathy for some of the images I've seen from Ukraine. These people are doing uh, doing doing some heroic things, but it is not our fight, right? You can recognize as an individual that this is a serious problem and that you feel for people, but it is not the fight of the U.S. government. It's not the care, the concern of the U.S. government, what's happening 6,000 miles away when we have so many problems right here at home. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just worry that this is being used, right? So, so we yeah. just found out today that the Hunter Biden laptop story, which was all, you know, remember, we were all told this was Russian mm -hmm. disinformation, right? It was stolen by the Russians. They somehow, I don't know, created computer imagery of Hunter Biden doing things uh, that he shouldn't be doing and put him on that laptop to embarrass 
uh, the, the guy that the, the establishment wanted to become the president, Joe Biden. Yep. So it was Russian disinformation. Now we find out today that even the New York Times is admitting that it is not Russian disinformation. In fact, it was Hunter Biden's laptop. And it raises a whole lot of questions, right, about the corruption between Hunter, the Ukrainians, the Chinese, his dad, who's now, I mean, God forbid, it's hard to even admit it, uh, but we're 18 months into the reign of his father as president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, why are we so quick to assume that the same establishment that got us into Iraq that got us into Syria, got us into Lebanon, got us into Afghanistan, that tried to tell us for four years that, you know, Donald Trump was a Russian puppet, that tried to tell us for, you know, an entire election cycle that Hunter Biden was was in fact a stand-up guy. It was all Russian disinformation that he had some corrupt business dealings. Why are we so eager as, you know, as a lot of establishment Republicans are to give those people power to take us into a war in Russia, right? At the end of the day, you go to war, as you know better than I do, you go to war with the generals that you have. Do I want General Mark Milley sending American boots on the ground in Ukraine and Russia? No, I do not. Do I want Joe Biden? God forbid Kamala Harris, right? This woman can't even string a sentence together without making of a fool of herself. And we're talking about giving them more and more powers to escalate a tense situation. We've got to accept that even if we did, and I don't think that we do, but even if we did have a vital national interest in Ukraine, we got to be honest with ourselves about who's actually in charge of our government right now, a bunch of clowns. And I don't want to give them more power. I want to give them less power. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think it's worse than that. You just you just rattled off the political appointees. Uh, but we have a government that is riddled with people that are incompetent. You remember in the Hunter Biden laptop, you had a political article that published a letter from 50 intelligence professionals. Four or five of them were... Uh, were uh, CIA directors or higher, yep. uh, and, and, and a lot of them were undersecretaries, uh, deputy directors, uh, the four-star general, uh, and I hate to say this, Air Force General Breedlove, the, who was the SACIR, that's Supreme Allied Commander Europe, uh, folks uh, uh, that, that said this was Russian disinformation. So if, when we have a government that's riddled with people like that, led by political appointees, as you so rightly pointed out, Heck no! I do not want to go into anything more than than a uh, a paper wad fight with with straws, you know? <laughs> and even that I would be hesitant to get into. My God! Uh, so you're absolutely right. Uh, but if you were in the Senate today, what would we you be t- saying from the podium to tell your colleagues and this administration about this issue? Well, I think I'd I, I try to emphasize two things, right? The, the first is, and, and people always credited rightly, right, Donald Trump with being strong. Right? That's why Putin, mm-hmm. of course, he invaded a country during the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and now the Biden administration. The only guy he didn't invade a country on is Trump's watch. So people talk about Trump's strength, and that's right. Uh, but the thing that people always leave out is that he was actually smart about other countries' interests. Right. You, you hear they're constantly asking, well, you know, why don't you condemn Putin? Why don't we condemn Putin? And of course, it's a joke because he has condemned Putin. But at the same time, he said, well, you know, you've got to actually have a relationship with world leaders. Uh, there's nothing bad with talking to people. We talk to a lot of bad, evil people. You've got to do that as the president of the United States in order to conduct diplomacy. Number one, I'd be saying, why are we not trying to find an off ramp here? Right. OK, yeah. moralize all you want. Of course, Vladimir Putin is a bad guy. Why aren't we doing more to bring this conflict to an end? It's one of the things that the Israelis seem to be doing in an incredibly effective way is serving as a mediator to try to get this conflict to stop. 
because there's always the risk of escalation, right? You know, you got a lot of Ukrainian civilians that are getting killed. You got a lot of other people that could get killed if this blows up in a big way. We've got to try to be de-escalating the situation, number one. And number two, I would be using this crisis as leverage to accomplish things that we that are really in our vital national interest. Uh, when they say we want $14 billion for Ukraine, what I would be saying is, look, fine. I'm fine with, with supplying the Ukrainians with aid, with medical supplies, with food. Of course, you know, that's I'm, I'm, I'm not opposed to it, but it should be predicated on sending some money to solve the problems in our country, specifically the U.S. southern border crisis, which to me, again, is, is, is crisis number one. But I think those are the two things that we need to be doing. Finding an off ramp, but also ensuring that before we spend money on something else, we're actually spending money to solve the problems here at home. Uh, those are the things that I'd be doing. And, and that's, you know, unfortunately, we have few, you know, there are some politicians out there that are doing that, but very few of our leaders right now are willing to put our own citizens first and to be pushing the president and others to try to get an off ramp for the situation. Because, you know, the last point I'll make here is the thing that we don't talk nearly enough about, the vital national interest that we do have is China. Okay, there, there's so much that the Chinese control, so much damage that they can do. And if you look at what's going on, the Chinese are getting closer and closer with the Russians. The Russians are getting closer and closer with the Chinese. And is anybody asking whether that long term alliance is actually in the interest of the country? Because, of course, it isn't. Right. Of course, it's not. So one thing we should be thinking about if, if we're paying attention to our vital national interests, which we should be is how do we ensure that this war comes to a close in such a way that doesn't empower the real enemy, which is China? Yeah, yeah, because, you know, China would love to have an overland pipeline from Russia so they could buy most of their oil and gas and they wouldn't have to worry about their ports anymore. That's right. Uh, in any kind of conflict. Uh, and that would be just another step to them going ahead and taking Taiwan back by force if they so chose to do so, because they wouldn't have to worry about those ports uh, and being able to get across that strait and, and keep their oil and gas flowing. So, so those are the kinds of things that, that uh, statesmen uh, uh, think about. And that's what we need in this yep. country. We need statesmen uh, and stateswomen to really think these things through. And, and I, think, I think you hit the nail on the head. That's, this is where I come from. I, when I ran for office the first time, we had a great success Unfortunately, Trump hadn't run yet. Uh, but with these America first, what's called America first policies now, uh, and, and if we would just look through the lens of what American citizens' priorities are and our vital national interests first, before we make these kinds of decisions, we will make better decisions. We have done it in the past. Uh, the Reagan administration is an right. example of that. Uh, we have done it in the past, uh, and it can be done, but we've got to have people that are not career politicians or career establishment and that are so highly linked to the money uh, and those kind of things. Would you, uh, JD, would you, uh, would you, speaking of the money uh, mm -hmm. in politics and those kind of things, do you have any thoughts on, on how we can stop the Congress from doing the priorities of their corporate donors, uh, and not just corporate donors, but their big group donors too? Yeah. Uh, uh, and do the, do the priorities of the people they represent and the states they represent. Uh, yeah. Because that's what's really going on right now, isn't it? Uh, it is, yeah. No, and I, I, you know, I've, I've gotten in a bit of a food fight here in Ohio the past couple of days because I was the only candidate that's running for this Republican primary that refused to go and kiss the ring of the Chamber of Commerce leadership. 
you know, of course, you got a lot of good Chamber of Commerce members, a lot of small businesses that are employing people in our communities. Mm -hmm. uh, but the leadership of the Chamber of Commerce here in Ohio is a disaster, right? It's led by basically a liberal Republican uh, who's pretty radical on a lot of these corporate woke policies where he's getting big businesses involved in social issues like transgenderism and voter ID and a, a bunch of crazy stuff where you know, even if you don't agree with me, and of course, you know, I, I don't like girls playing uh, or boys playing girls sports and, I, and, I, and I'm very pro-life, even if you're not there, keep these businesses out of these questions, right? Even if you don't want to have safe and secure elections, you don't want to have universal voter ID, keep the corporations out of these decisions. But these corporations have gone increasingly left wing and they've decided to play in politics in a way that's very unique uh, in our political system. The way I, I think about this, Colonel, is, is maybe, you know, 60, 70 years ago, I believe it was the head of General Motors who said what's good for General Motors is good for America. And that was basically right. You know, General Motors was an American company. Its suppliers were American. Its customers were American. It really depended on the success of the American nation. Could, could anybody really keep a straight face if you said what's good for Google is good for America? Right? Google's got more long-term relationships with the Chinese. Or what's yeah. good for Hollywood is good for America. Like there are actors who have criticized the Chinese 20 years ago who cannot even get a role in, in Hollywood 20 years later because they said something that was critical about the Chinese in the late 90s. Right? We have to wake up to the fact that a lot of America's largest corporations have actually invested financially in some of America's enemies, have adopted values that are hostile to conservatives. And if Republicans keep on bending the knee to these people, as opposed to going and doing battle on behalf of their own voters, like you can win an election, right? Republican voters mm -hmm. can vote for Republicans, but if the people they send are gonna listen to the Chamber of Commerce, which is really just the Chamber of Amnesty, uh, we're gonna continue to listen to these companies that are more invested in America's enemies, then we're going to lose the fight for the soul of this country, even if we even if we win some elections. And we need Republicans to call this stuff out. We need Republicans. You know, Peter Schweitzer wrote this incredible book called, I think, Red Handed about American corporations, relationships with the Chinese. We need people who are calling this stuff out so that our voters know what's going on. And also we can hold the politicians feet to the fire. They should be standing for their own voters, not for the corporations uh, that that they don't have this country's interest in heart. And of course, you know, I, I'm not an anti-business guy, right? I, I love, you know, when mm -hmm. people create a product, when they employ people, when they get wealthy doing so, but we've got to create some separation, right? There are pro-American companies out there and there are anti-American companies out there. And we as politicians, as political leaders, need to think about those things differently. Yeah, you know, the Chinese uh, companies uh, that can be listed on the American Stock Exchange, uh, uh, you know, maybe you can take this on as one of your policy studies. Uh, the, you know, those companies are really owned by the Chinese Communist Party right. or the PLA, sometimes both. The PLA is the People's Liberation Army folks. Uh, uh, but they don't, ha they don't have to stand up to the rigorous auditing requirements that American companies do. And when President Trump tried to get them delisted, uh, because they're communist Chinese companies, the, the Americans with the power, the money uh, in New York, will, right. will fought against it, and they're still fighting against it. Uh, yeah. ha have you looked into that, and do you have any ideas or thoughts going, going that direction and any yeah, other China, yeah. China policy that we need to take on that we're not doing? Yeah, a few things we need to do. I mean, I think, you know, you just mentioned one of his smarter policies. We need to actually encourage that, promote that. Mm -hmm. 
uh, turn that into law and not just something that's a, that's a good idea that a lot of our corporate leaders have let die on the vine. We got to put tariffs on a lot of these companies that are doing business with the Chinese when they try to bring their 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 products back into our markets. We got to be willing to penalize them for having done business with the Chinese in the first place. Uh, you know, a thing that we really got to be careful about is the amount of our country that Chinese investors are buying up. So there are major cities in this country where it's almost impossible for a young family to buy a single family home because Wall Street banks backed with Chinese money are buying up all the single family homes or American farmland, right? We've learned what happens when we let our energy and our manufacturing be made by other people. It makes us weak and dependent as a country. What about our farmland, right? What, what, what's going to happen if we continue to let uh, Chinese money come in and buy American farmland, control our food supply? You know, we, we, at the end of the day, our founding fathers recognized this constitutional republic only works when we're a people of owners, right? When we actually own yeah. a stake in the future of this country. Uh, if you let Wall Street banks backed by Chinese money come up and buy everything, you're not a you're not a nation of owners. You're a nation of renters. And at the end of the day, the people who own you control your future, uh, not 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 the citizens of this country. So I think we need to ban foreign investment into this country, or at least foreign investment from hostile countries so that American citizens are able to buy a stake in their own country, not having taken it out from under them by hostile regimes. That's those are great ideas, and uh, I'm all for them for sure. And, and any any American that that believes in our priorities being first uh, should be happy to sign up to those ideas. That's right. Well, well, JD, we're running out of time, but I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about something that we kind of briefly touched on earlier, and that is that is the government, uh, the bureaucrats, the political appointees, uh, and uh, one of the challenges that Mr. Trump had was political appointees, even those that he appointed, you know, he, he appointed General Milley, sure. uh, he, uh, he selected him, uh, would work against him in uh, nefarious ways, in my opinion. Uh, and the people, and I mentioned the bureaucracy and the bureaucrats and the government, it's my opinion that if Trump runs and wins again, or any Republican president that runs uh, has to have this as part of their positions, and that is that they're going to go scorched earth policy on civil service and political appointees and bring in as many people as they can from outside of the beltway to put in those positions and hire into the civil service senior leadership people from outside the beltway. You know, you can get people like myself with military service. There's tons of people that are colonels, thousands of them out there that have never worked inside the beltway other than a tour in the Pentagon. Uh, so they're not tainted. They're yeah. not connected to the money. Uh, uh, do you have a position on that or would you sign up to that? I guess is what I'm asking to give you a chance to answer that question, man. Yeah, yeah, I would, Colonel. And, you know, it's one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had with with President Trump was talking about Mark Milley. And, you know, he he probably six months before Milley was a household name for the series of disasters that he presided over. I don't you probably remember him talking about white rage being a yeah. big problem in the U.S. military. What a giant joke. Uh, well before that, I talked to the president about Mark Milley, and and he said, like, you know, people don't realize how bad this guy is. And you, you start to realize that, you know, if there are five generals to choose from and they go from bad to worse and the president's got to choose one of them, then you've lost the government no matter who you elect as president because the civil service is so broken, right? The people who are actually yeah. going to carry out the president's orders, not like, you know, it's not like Donald Trump or whoever else is going to be running, you know, every single part of the government. It's got millions of people involved. 
Um, so, so one interesting thing um, that, that I, the way that I, I, I try to look at this is who controls the government in this country, right? In a constitutional republic, it is the people that we elect as citizens within a constitutional framework that should control our government. But if the bureaucrats control the government and the bureaucrats can't be fired, which is very hard to fire the bureaucracy right now, then it's not really the people or their elected leaders who control the government. It is that civil service. And so I think that if you really want to return any constitutional power back to the people as the, as the Constitution really envisions it, you have to make it easy for the president to fire the civil service, right? That says right there in Article 2 of the Constitution, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States, not in a civil service, not in a group of career bureaucrats. The only way to carry out that constitutional design is for the president to be able to fire bad civil servants so that he gets his agenda his ideas carried into public policy. Uh, so we've got to do that. It's a big legal change. It's, it's, it's a big amount to bite off. But unless we do it, we don't live in a real constitutional society. We live in a basically an oligarchy controlled by the bureaucrats, which is unfortunately what we've got right now. Yeah, and that's a big part of the issue. I, I, I tweeted out a few days ago about firing, given, you know, having the president be able to fire bureaucrats and, and got a whole bunch of criticism back. Oh, it's, you're giving too much power to a guy like Donald Trump or right. Joe Biden and all that. Well, the Constitution already gives them the power. Yep. That's the problem is we are in an extra constitutional government and society right now. And if we get back to where it's supposed to be, We'll all be not just a lot better off, but we'll we'll be a strong America that's, that's right. ready to face down the challenges of the bad people and bad governments in the world, while at the same time being able to take care of ourselves the way things ought to be. Don't you think? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, and that is how the founders, you know, uh, they wanted a balanced constitution. They wanted checks and balances between the different branches of government, but they wanted a strong presidency, right? That's why they rejected yeah. the original Articles of Confederation and adopted a new constitution, is you needed to have a president who could carry out the executive function of the government. Uh, we don't have that right now because the civil service is so left-wing that mm -hmm. when there's a, you know, when there's a Democrat, yeah, they do just fine, right? Because they like yeah. what the Democrat's doing. But if a Republican gets elected, we're never able to accomplish what we need to accomplish because the civil service is not on our side. Well, J.D., thanks a lot for taking that question. I appreciate that. Uh, and thank you for coming on today. Uh, we wish you well. I've had your, your Twitter and Getter handle up at J.D. Vance One, the whole show. Uh, what's your website where people can go and donate? At jdvance.com, uh, you know, I, I wrote my own policy platform on the website, didn't have a consultant write it. Uh, also, people can donate there. They can volunteer for the campaign. Uh, we need all the help that we can get. We've got a primary coming up here in May, and I feel very good about it, but only if we actually do the work. Absolutely. You got to do the work. I know you're doing it. Right. I, I feel for you. <laughs> my family and I have your family and you in our prayers, and we really appreciate you stepping up to, uh, to help get America back on the track that it uh, should have stayed on. But we can get it back there. So thank you very much, JD. Thanks, Colonel. Take care. Yep. Take care. Well, folks, that's uh, Ohio Senate candidate Republican JD Vance, uh, a Marine veteran uh, who is America first, and uh, I think the best candidate in the Republican primary, as he mentioned, is coming up in May. And uh, y'all need to get to that website and help him out. Until next week. I'm Rob Manus.